Good afternoon. It's Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry. Today is 29 December 2022. This is going to be Immunoepigenetics Lecture 9. And we were talking about neonatal expression of an interleukin 12 subunit gene called P35 when we lost, when we uh, last left off. So what we concluded with was that neonatal IL-12 P35 transcription is repressed at the chromatin level. <clears throat> and the administration of interferon gamma will restore both nucleosomal retailering and that IL-12 P35 nascent transcription. Now, what that suggests, because of this nucleosomal retailering, remember the nucleosome is going to be composed of protein and nucleic acid, such as the histones can be acetylated or methylated or otherwise covalently modified, but the DNA can also be modified, particularly we're talking about cytosine residue, CPG islands. I also know that there is some adenosine uh, modification that can occur, mostly at the RNA level, but also at the DNA level. Right now we're talking about methylation, uh, more or less uh, uh, sensu stricto. Now, back to this interferon gamma. Interferon gamma, when, when it is added, or, or when it is stimulated from, say, an innate immune cell, or from a cluster of more mature lymphocytic lines in circulation will restore nucleosomal remodeling or retailering and the interleukin-12 P35 transcription. And what that indicates is a modulation of nucleosomal retailering being essential for the activation of neonatal dendritic cells. So the transcription of P35 is regulated by chromatin. And basically we're talking about a geographical alteration of the position of the nucleosome as it covers and overlaps a promoter region for the IL-25 P35, IL-12 P35, excuse me, over the promoter region for the transcription site. Okay. So here's another important aspect of this. A different cytokine, interleukin 10, inhibits interleukin 12 P35 transcription, but it also inhibits histone deacetylation, and it does so on the interleukin 12 P35 promoter. So that is that explains what has been in the literature for a while that interleukin-12 controls macrophage differentiation. So the upshot of that, we mentioned a couple of lectures ago, but it's that histone deacetylases also can regulate the transcription of interleukin-12 P35 via nucleosomal modification and occurring specifically at the promoter site. So that is going to require 
more of an explanation. So now you have deacetylation associated with methylation. Now, deacetylation and the methylation should both work together in that when you methylate chromatin, particularly methylating cytosine residues proximal to a promoter for the transcription of a gene, such as this particular cytokine in leukin 12 and then you associate that with deacetylation of, say, lysine residues on histone 3 linked to that nucleosomal complex, those would both be coherent in suppressing gene expression. But if you just noticed, I told you that interleukin-10 inhibits histone deacetylation. So that means that you would have a higher level of an acetylome on the lysine residues on those histones at that nucleosomal uh, geographical location where the promoter has been methylated, right? So what that suggests is that the acetylation of histones does more than simply make euchromatin. It also allows for nucleosomal shuffling proximal to promoter regions of DNA, and that will control or be a component of the control over gene expression at that location. That's why I use the word geographical, right? That's why I'm calling it that, a location on the DNA. So we talked about SP1. So let's go into some detail about this. It's a paper published in PNAS this last year. There are over 2,000 DNA transcription factors found in the human genome. And that's not a very large number when you think about all the regulation of gene expression at the transcriptional level we've been talking about just these last eight lectures, just in immunoepigenetics, let alone all the other times we've discussed it. But how about this? Recall that of those 2,000 transcription factors, you're going to have a clustering and you're going to have a combinatorial interaction with multiple transcription factors and adapter proteins assembling, carrying out either the faithful expression of a gene that is promoting gene expression at a specific locus, or simultaneously at another location, super enhancing that expression or limiting its expression or shutting it down. So the transcription factors are actually associated sometimes with the authorship of the epigenetic profile, such as acetylases, deacetylases, methylases, demethylases, right? Because they're going to bind as well to cis-acting and trans-acting elements in that nucleosomal area that's proximal to some promoter region. But also, and I'm telling you, all those promoters can... Um, insert themselves or remove themselves at the level of control over promoter binding to allow for nation transcription. And if you've got 2,000 different transcription factors, you start considering how each one can combine with another one and then yet another one at different ratios, dealing with a constantly changing although non-stochastic, methylome, acetylome, 
plus all the other covalent modifications you can have at the uh, nucleosomal level. You're talking about literally orders of magnitude well beyond millions to hundreds of millions of possible discrete and distinct changes in gene expression. And it doesn't mean that all of those are probable, but they're all possible given just the players in the event ontology, all the different transcription factors, and then all of that real-time alteration of methylation and acetylation. Okay? So that allows for a complete plasticity of the genome that heretofore was never considered at all um, the appropriate way to understand gene expression. We thought we understood at the level of enhancers and promoters. Now we're telling you that there is a modification of gene expression that is more subtle because it's more difficult to apprehend because you need to do bisulfite, um, real-time PCR sequencing, pyro sequencing of those sites in order to be able to find them. But even when you do that, remember there are multiple sites of CPG and multiple locations on histones. So which ones should you look at? Because um, looking at all of them in one set of experiments would be overpowering for the lab setting. So you selectively choose some you think might be hot spots because of previous research, for example. But at the same time, understand that that authorship will then need to be read by proteins like bromodomains, remember those. And once read, whether or not that reading is going to actually enhance transcription, hinder transcription, or do nothing, because it could simply bind. The reader can bind to those sites, those epigenetically modified sites. And now add in all those transcription factors going to be associated with this communication network of authorship and reading. And then finally, remember that can all be erased via the demethylase, deacetylase at the simplest level. So you may miss it when you're doing an RT-PCR using bisulfite sequencing, of which loci are actually controlled by methylation acetylation. You see, you might miss it entirely. And then the next time you do it, you find it. So which is it? Is it on or off, you see? Well, then you can look at transcription rates and that helps you get a handle on it. That's, you know, that's one great thing. It's, it's a sequence of events. Everything is a sequence of events. But knowing which ones are turned off or turned on is still not all mapped out, right? The more we look at it, the more complex it becomes. So what you can say is that transcription factors actually have enough of their own um, plasticity to bind to multiple transcription sites, right? So their specificity is not as bright as it used to be considered. So that was the whole discussion we ha we've had for the last, gosh, 20 years on regulatory elements. And regulatory elements are sometimes transcription factors, sometimes adapter proteins for the transcriptional machinery, right? all the proteins necessary to combine in the correct stoichiometric arrangement to generate a transcription complex that will faithfully cause a transcription 
you know, any given gene, right? So that means you have to look at the region. You have to look at the spanning of that region and the um, spectrum of that span relative to methylation acetylation, plus those other covalent modifications that we talk about for epigenetics, plus the possibility of involvement of, yes, microRNA, to be able to absolutely confine your discussion to an understanding of that gene expression. You have to interrogate it at multiple levels. Right? That's what I'm saying. So you can use microscopy, and there's a certain type called fluorescence recovery, okay? Also known as fluorescence recovery after photo bleaching or FRAP microscopy. And when you use that kind of technique, it's now using fluorescence to measure and to monitor, you can find that there is a high rate of mobility and turnover of transcription factors in the nucleus at specific genomic loci. And that time scale of how quickly this happens, yeah, it's at the level, at least at the, at the gross level of seconds. Okay. Now imagine yourself working in a laboratory and trying to isolate that because you're going to be doing stop frame, right? Of course. So many other advances besides FRAP have been you know, brought on, including, as I said, trying to look at chromatin at the individual nucleotide level. And, and that can be done. And that can be done again with pyrosequencing, bisulfide pyrosequencing, real-time PCR. But then you have to make all of those specific reagents. You have to make the right primers and you have to be able to isolate the right products to then do that sequencing. And then you have to piece still that all together into a sequence of events, right? Okay. So what is known, just in terms of the mechanism, the dynamics are extremely rapid and we're talking about the level of seconds or at the most for having a, a complete uh, orchestration of a gene expression at the level of a minute or two, okay? So what do you have to worry about then in terms of uh, biophysics, biochemistry? You have to worry about binding kinetics, the binding kinetics of the transcription factors and how that changes over time. Is there any hydrogen bonding involved? How much hydrogen bonding? How is that related to the uh, lipid association of those proteins? Many of these proteins that you find interacting with nucleic acids are modified covalently by fatty acids and prenolipids, right? Acylipids, prenolipids. That will add another layer of sophistication of control over gene expression. But also remember that the endomembranous system from all those lectures in endomembranes are responsible for trafficking a collection of polypeptides with lipids to specific membrane regions that can then be um, mobilized upon induction of the gene expression via something like a toll-like receptor responding to, yeah, an antigen presentation. Because that's what we're talking about, right? We're in that neonate model we were discussing, right? Sure. So 
The combination of high throughput techniques also includes, of course, CHIP technology. That's chromatin immunoprecipitation. So we use antibodies to precipitate certain segments of chromatin. And when you use the antibody, you use the antibody to a transcription factor. So then you can isolate where those transcription factors are binding by immunoprecipitating them with an antibody to that specific transcription factor. Right? And you can do this multiple times. So that's how you can detect multiple transcription factors working on the same promoter or the same enhancer right? or the same nucleosomal shifting uh, mechanism. Okay. And that really is helpful when you have an inducible system. And we just talked about all kinds of ways to induce the expression of, for example, pro-inflammatory cytokines, like in lupin 12, right? Using something as sim simple as lipopolysaccharide. <clears throat> now, let me talk about some more detail here. There are the Tata binding proteins. That's nucleic acid sequence TATA. Now, those Tata binding proteins are called, by short, TBPs. And you also have the DNA binding repressor activating protein. That's called RAP1. So you have TBPs and RAP1s, right? And they show themselves a great deal of alteration of residence time at their well-known target sites at the level of chromatin. And what's uh, unfortunate to notice is that their residence time does not correlate that well with actual binding, because you can pick them up by the, by the chip technology, but does it mean the protein's really bound or just in the location, you see? And there are simple ways to determine whether or not the protein is bound or not, right? By using various reagents, which will, you know, change hydrogen bonding patterns, for example, or covalent bonding patterns. So the two are not linear. If you have a bad correlation between residence time of things like the TBP and the RAP proteins with known transcription sites, transcription uh, promoter sites, the residence time near there and their actual binding, right? Okay. So there's new approaches. This lab, the, from this 2021 paper we're talking about, uses something called chip-seq or chip sequencing, right? So this is combining a couple of technologies I just mentioned to you. And when they do this, when they combine immunoprecipitation with sequencing, they find that the exchange of human TBPs, those are the Tata binding proteins, at promoters we know are correlated with strong transcriptional activity, are sometimes found downstream of the open reading frame. That's correct. So Tata box is downstream from where you would expect these proteins to bind, can also have high levels of TBP binding. So that means possibly you have a collection of these TBP proteins that are completely away from the promoter region of a given gene that's about ready to be promoted for expression, but are laced three prime to the end of the open reading frame of the gene that, it, that is going to be altered by the TBP. And then those binding proteins, those Tata box binding proteins are translocated from that location 
to the promoter region in real time. And that's the level of a couple of seconds, right? And then that will then start the process for transcription of that gene. So in other words, the proteins are nearby, they're in residence, but they're like down the block and they have to be brought right up to the residence necessary, which, you know, metaphor for the promoter region or the enhancer region for them to be functional. Okay. And that was discovered by using time course chip sequencing. Right. So, so it turns out Tadabox binding proteins have fast binding kinetics at RNA polymerase two promoter regions, slow kinetics at RNA polymerase three promoters, and very slow kinetics at RNA polymerase one promoter regions. And you know, those different RNA polymerases are responsible for the transcription of different genes. For example, genes that will be making messenger RNA, ribosomal RNA, or transfer RNA, right? So there, that's another level of control, having these Tadabox binding proteins in association with different associated RNA polymerases at the very gross or granular level, controlling the expression of classes of genes, all of which are ultimately going to be involved in what? Translation of polypeptide, of course, right? Because you need ribosomal RNA, transfer RNA, and you also need transcripts. Right? Yeah. So you get how that works. I think that's really a, um, a cool observation. Okay. So TBP is a general transcription factor which will associate with RNA polymerases 1, 2, and 3, but it requires for the, for the appropriate binding a whole host of other yet general transcription factors. So TBP is different from many of the other DNA binding transcription factors that are known to selectively bind at the promoter proximal and promoter distal regions of that DNA sequence. That means that binding dynamics of any of those DNA binding transcription factors have to be teased out for us to even get to the first proximal understanding of the depth perception we require to understand the real-time event ontology of gene transcription. That is messenger RNA, ribosomal RNA, transfer RNA. Right. And with the messenger RNA, that would include all the polypeptides, right? right? And still, even in 2021, when this uh, chip sequencing paper was published, they admit that this whole arrangement of mechanism is still largely unexplored, right? All right. Now let's talk about SP1 again. Remember, I, I mentioned that uh, end of last lecture, beginning of this one. SP1 is the specificity protein one. It is, of course, one of the very first identified transcription factors. It def definitely binds the DNA. And SP1 seems to be pretty ubiquitous in all cell study, eukaryotic cell study. So what does SP1 do? SP1, the specificity protein 1, binds to GC box sequences found in approximately 30% of human 
promoter proximal regions. Now, where is that located? Between about minus 150 base pair to plus 50 base pair relative to the transcription site. And the transcription start site is known as the TSS. Sorry for the acronyms, but uh, for time efficiency, we have to start using them more and more. So that's when SP1 can actually function as a transcriptional activator, right? When it's upstream from the TSS. So SP1 motifs are highly enriched in promoter proximal regions, as you might guess. So what's the distinction between the binding dynamics of SP1 considering what we just told you about the binding dynamics of the Tata box binding protein, which was a different global transcription factor, right? That's a logical question to ask. <clears throat> so let's go through some details here. Let's see we have time we have left. I really hate it when I get cut off from the powers that be. I've got little less than five minutes. So I think I can do some damage to the rest of what I want to say today. <laughs> So there's slow SP1 binding sites, and those tend to be uh, at higher concentrations at enhancer regions and other non-promoter regions. Remember, enhancer elements in, in uh, DNA enhance the expression of a gene, but they're not part of the canonical promotion of the transcription, right? They enhance it. They modify the promotion by enhancing it, right? Those are the old classical terms. Of course, there's a lot more to say about that. So when you look at chromatin states specified and classified as SP1 binding sites, you get a peak summit of those binding sites up to and including about positive 250 base pairs. And of course, that is going to be relative to what? And before we're talking about before the promoter region, this is going to be a little bit into those regions, in the promoter or into the open reading thread. Now, why is that? Because that's where you're going to find enhancers. And you're also going to find polycomb repressed regions and yet even other genomically described geographical locations. So what are polychrome repressed? Polychrome proteins will assemble into one of two large multiprotein complexes, which post-translationally modify histones. So what do you think is going to happen there? Okay, here we go. Polychrome repressive complex 1, that's PRC1, mono ubiquitinylates histone 2A at lysine 119. So for short, we call that H2AK119UB1. Okay? That's the shorthand for that region of the histone, that particular lysine residue, that particular histone. Now, PRC2, yes, there's more than one form of polyclone, polycomb repressor complexes. PRC2 mono di and trimethylates histone H3 at lysine 27. So here you can say 
H3K27ME1, H3K27ME2, and H3K27ME3. Three different locations. Now, PRC1 and PRC2 spatially converge at the same sites in the genome to form what's known as a polycomb chromatin domain, which is how we got here from talking about SP1, remember? And they are uniquely enriched there at that ubiquitinylation site and also at that methylation site 3 on lysine 27 histone 3. So polychrome chromatin domains are then most likely counteracting transcription by hindering, okay, transcription factor binding. That's something I think everyone uh, has a pretty good handle on if you've taken molecular genetics. All right, so yeah, we're going to, well, less than a minute, so we're going to end there. So you see, now we're really into getting into detail about how epigenetic phenomenon are not your, you know, your father's epigenetics. There's much more detail here. It's common. In fact, it's universal to control gene expression. That is epigenetic modification. That is adding things like ubiquitin or acetate or methyl groups to specific regions of DNA that are, yes, profoundly involved in gene transcription, such things as promoters and enhancers. Right. And, and now we're trying to figure out the sequence of events there. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, 29 December 2022, saying bye for now.